This morning we have two scripture readings from two gospels. The first one is in Matthew 21 on page 955. And then after that, I'll be reading from Luke 18 uh, on page 1016. But we'll begin in Matthew, and it's probably no surprise that both both passages are talking about prayer this morning. So Matthew 21, 12 to 17. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are turning it into a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Did you hear what those children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You have ordained praises. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. And then Luke 18 starting at verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And Jesus said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, who will cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be like you. We desire that you would teach us again and again about prayer. Would you reveal to us the truth that prayer humbles us? It it puts us right before you. It shows us who we are in you. We thank you that prayer brings justice. And we pray so often for justice around the world. Help us to not give up praying for those that are in need. And we also read that prayer and healing go together. We pray for this. We pray not only that ourselves would be healed, but that we would be conduits of healing for others through prayer. Father, continue to teach us to love prayer and to be people who are uh, constant prayers. We pray for Pastor Mark now as he comes. We pray that we would be good listeners uh, and listen in spirit and in truth to the words that you have prepared for him to share with us this morning. We pray all this in your beloved, beautiful, strong, powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, David. My house will be a house of prayer for all the peoples, all the nations. So we heard this declaration from the Lord from his prophet Isaiah in chapter 56 of Isaiah's prophecy. We heard it repeated, although a bit abbreviated, uh, by Jesus in Matthew's account uh, in chapter 21. And then we hear it applied in Luke chapter 18 in the prayers of these two individuals, the widow before the unjust judge and also the tax collector who was both humble and repentant. My house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. As I mentioned earlier in our service, we are continuing our sermon series this morning, taken directly from your questions that you've shared uh, through my suggestion box that's back there on the back table, uh, also via email, and for a couple of you who have talked to either me or Pastor Yuri personally, and we appreciate your input. So we're answering your questions, and I call these the controlling questions of our inquiry these days. And the controlling question that we'll be trying to answer from an explicitly and consciously biblical Christian point of view over the next month or so concerns prayer. 
I'm sure the question about prayer that came to us earlier in the summer will resonate with many, if not all of us. Everyone who's ever been serious about prayer will understand the deep place from which it comes. We may even share the inquirer's viewpoint. And lest we misunderstand, such questions come from a place of deep faith and not unbelief. In fact, the question that will control our mini-series on prayer over this next three, this and the next three Sundays encapsulates most of our experience in the biblical Christian faith and life. Here it is. Prayer is a comfort to God's people, but what if I don't see evidence that it changes anything? It's a very honest question. Prayer is a comfort to God's people, but what if I don't see evidence that it changes anything? Not only is this a central question for the practice of the biblical Christian life, it's also critical that we understand it honestly, both from the Bible and from Christian experience. Now, when I say from Christian experience, I, I don't only mean from our own particular and personal experiences. While our own particular and personal Christian experiences are certainly important, mainly to us, it's also, or they are also, very limited, also mainly to us. There's a vast, wide, and deep history of experience across the landscape of Christian faith throughout the two millennia since Jesus came, since he established a new covenant in his own, in his own blood between God and mankind, and especially since he began to establish and secure to and for himself a people, the church of which he is the head. In fact, we can say that the experiential history from which we can and should draw extends back well before the time of Jesus. Every human being who ever lived was created, has been created in God's image, including you and me and all of our ancestors, and to, to represent him on the earth. Literally from the very beginning of human history, God has established and secured to himself a people. So, of course, in addition to the church, I'm talking about his pre-Christ chosen people of God, Israel, from whom Jesus came, just as the prophets had foretold. And much of the pre-Christ, pre-Christian history of God's people, Israel, is recorded for us in the Hebrew Scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament, which includes a good bit about prayer. Most importantly, the whole Bible is God's revelation of himself, his will, his ways, and the specific path by which we may be reconciled to him, namely, through faith in Jesus Christ. So when we hear from the Old Testament in general, or from the Psalms, or from the prophecy of Isaiah, more particularly, as we have this morning, these are historical prayers and prayers from which and from whom we can learn and apply to our own understanding as prayers and as a praying congregation. My house will be a house of prayer 
for all the nations. Here are some additional, hopefully helpful and clarifying questions to our central or controlling question for this morning, as well as for the next three Sundays. What is prayer anyway? Or as our title for this morning puts it, what is prayer really? How do we pray? Or what constitutes true prayer? Are there particular mechanics to it? Who does the prayer? Kings, priests, prophets, pastors, super-duper spiritual folks? Who prays? Who is prayer directed at? Or to whom is prayer properly directed? And perhaps most urgently and importantly, what good is prayer? Does it make any real, tangible, observable, experiential, helpful, or lasting good? Can we hope in it? Or rather, can we pray and expect an answer, an outcome, a, a benefit to it? So this morning, we're trying to answer the question from a distinctively biblical Christian point of view, what is prayer really? And here's the central truth of our series of messages, all four weeks beginning this morning. You've got it there in your upper right corner on the inside of your bulletin. Biblical Christian prayer is an ongoing, deliberate, and personal expression of trust now and future hope in the one true and living God through a saving, sustaining, submitted faith in Jesus Christ, our forever Savior and Sovereign. Let's spend a couple of minutes with our central truth as you have it printed there in the inside upper left corner of your bulletins. Biblical Christian prayer. So during our series, and really I, I think also in any of our ministries, we want to have two foundations that work together to ground our work, to ground what we believe in truth. And that is the Bible and Christian. We are Christians. We are a Christian church, not denominationally, but we are a church that follows after Christ, that believes in Christ, who take our hope from Jesus Christ, and most specifically, as revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. So what we do, what we believe, what we proclaim is rightly biblical Christian. That's our context. So we're talking about a specific quality to our prayer, and that is that it's biblical and that it's Christian. So biblical Christian prayer is, first of all, an ongoing. It's not just a one-time thing. We don't just pray once and we're done, even on a particular topic perhaps. But it's ongoing, and it's ongoing mainly because it's a relational means by which we connect with God and He to us and with His Word. So we have this ongoing expression and it is deliberate. That is, we intend to do it. It's not, it's not happenstance. It's not a mistake. It's not by accident. It's not an excited utterance only. It's, it is, it's deliberate. We mean to. We might even plan to do it. We might even have a schedule for it. We might even do it at a particular time of day or a particular uh, during, be, before or after a particular event. 
And it's personal. It recognizes that our relationship with God is personal. One of the things I've just loved about going through the Psalms, and especially over the last number of months in Psalm 119, there are 176 verses, so it's going to take us a while. We're about two-thirds of the way through. And the, 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 the number of times that the name of God is used over and over again, Yahweh, which you have in your Bibles as the small capital letters. Um, Yuri made mention of it this morning in his call to worship. This is not a title, it is a name. And every time the psalmist speaks it, he is, he is calling God by name, Yahweh. It's a relationship. It's personal. So biblical Christian prayer is an ongoing, deliberate, and personal expression. Expression of what? Of trust now, regardless of our circumstance. We are trusting God in the moment, and we are also trusting him into the future. So it's trusting him now and into the future in hope. And we don't hope in our prayer. We don't have faith in our faith. We hope in God, the one true and living God. We are praying to him from a position of trust now and hoping in him into the future, the one true and living God, through a saving, sustaining, and submitted faith. So three words. Saving, sustaining, submitted. We have been saved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, of himself, on the cross, for the forgiveness of our sins, and we are made right with God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures. That's what it means to be saved. We are both justified, made right with God, and we are, here's a big fancy word, sanctified or made clean by his blood, washed of our sins so that we can now approach and address the one true and living holy God. So we are saved. We are sustained. This is by the Holy Spirit. Paul, uh, John Piper often asks his audience, wherever it is, this question. What makes you think you'll wake up tomorrow morning a Christian? What is the basis for your expectation that you will wake up a Christian tomorrow morning? If it's anything but the power of God and the Holy Spirit, you have no basis to expect that. The Holy Spirit seals us until the day of redemption according to Scripture. And one of the things that means is he sustains us in faith. So we have saving faith, that is, our, 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 say our salvation, our relationship with God began at a particular point. We may not even know what that moment, when that moment was. It's okay. I can tell you exactly where I was on the day, pretty close to the time, within about 15 minutes probably, on June the 30th, 1991. Not everybody has that specificity, and that's not what it means to be saved, having that specificity. Being saved means that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our lives and has borne us again. 
And that kind of faith is also submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Yes, we've received him as Savior, the saving faith that comes to us, a gift of God himself. We are sustained in that faith by the Holy Spirit, and we are also submitted now to him in faith as our sovereign Savior. He is now our sovereign or as I put it there in the, in the um, central truth, in Jesus Christ, our forever Savior and Sovereign. Biblical Christian prayer is an ongoing, deliberate, and personal expression of trust now and future hope in the one true and living God through a saving, sustaining, and submitted faith in Jesus Christ, our forever Savior and Sovereign. Let's pause to pray for just a moment. Lord, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your ongoing intercession for all the saints. We thank you for bringing us here today, whether we're here physically in this auditorium or we're watching and listening on our live stream or at some point after this in the archived recording. I pray, Lord, that you will be glorified and Jesus Christ exalted and the Holy Spirit recognized in what we say here, what we do here, what we believe here, what we speak here, and what we pray here. Thank you, Lord, for all the ways that you have blessed us with life, with a wonderful place to live here in Canada, we are so thankful to you. We are praying for our families that are on their way. We're, we pray that you deliver them soon so that they can join us here. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done on our behalf, most of all in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, and Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, by way of encouragement, please allow me to be the bearer of good news. Two parables, two points. Of course, we've already had a central truth, but that applies more to the entire four-week series of which this first message is a part. But for all of our practical purposes this morning, and from this point, two parables, two points. Now, as we continue, I should probably pause for a confession. I basically stole the title of my miniseries on prayer from noted Christian author and lay theologian, Philip Yancey, and his book, Prayer doesn't make any difference. Now, titles can't be copyrighted, so there's no legal infringement, but I think it is good to give credit where credit is due. I also wanted to share with you that Yancey, uh, this is all I'm going to share from his book this morning, but we'll do more from him over the next couple of weeks. He opened by quoting a fellow writer, Patricia Hample, and she says this, For prayer exists, no question about that. It is the peculiarly human response to the fact of this endless mystery of bliss and brutality, impersonal might and lyric intimacy that composes our experience of life. In our focal passage from chapter 18 of Luke's Gospel, Jesus clarifies for us in two parables 
two fundamental truths about authentic and effective prayer. Prayer that is acceptable and prayer that will be accepted by him and his Father in heaven. The first is from the first parable, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 18 in Luke's Gospel. Authentic and effective prayer, which is also biblical Christian prayer, will be a believing expression of persevering trust and faith in God in Christ Jesus. Authentic and effective prayer, which is also biblical Christian prayer, will be a believing expression of persevering trust and persevering faith in God in Christ Jesus. Or as our narrator, Dr. Luke, put it in verse 1, that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Perseverance can be recognized, practiced, and appreciated in a number of ways. Perhaps the first and most familiar example of perseverance is carrying on, no matter what, never quitting. The athlete, the patient, the parent, the scientist, the politician, the parishioner, and yes, even the pastor who never quits. Doing the good thing, the right thing, and the true thing, and perhaps dramatically against all odds or the belief of others, at least if it's made into a movie, that's what it would look like. And this perseverance is lauded and remembered. We value perseverance, even when we struggle to manifest it ourselves. In Jesus' first parable in Luke 18, this sort of perseverance is certainly on display, but with a twist. Not only does the petitioning widow not quit, she won't leave. And she won't give the judge any rest. I think this is a polite way of saying she won't shut up until he gives her justice. Now, a very helpful thing to keep in mind about parables, and especially the parables of Jesus, is that parables almost always have one central truth. They make one single point. Hence, two parables, two points this morning. The even better news is that the one point of the parable is often given to us in the text, either by the teller, Jesus in this case, or by the narrator, and here it's Dr. Luke. So if you hear a preacher preaching on one of Jesus' parables with three points in a poem, you can rightly be suspicious that he may not have understood the parable. Or it may also be the case that he's treating a text as a parable that isn't actually a parable. Helpfully, many of Jesus' parables are identified in the text itself, as in our text, in verse 1, and he told them a parable. Or in verse 9, he also told this parable, which is to say, if a parable is not noted as such in the text, one can be equally cautious in trying to understand that text as a parable. Now, I don't have time to go through them, but there are several passages in the Gospels that have been traditionally treated as parables, and I'm not so sure they are parables at all. 
I'll give you just one example that you can write down and look at on your own. I'm, I'm not going to go to that text because I'd, I'd get you know, off on a tangent and we don't have time for that this morning. It's, it's in Luke 16. In fact, it's the whole chapter. Luke 16, the whole chapter really, but especially, and you'll recognize this parable that I don't think is a parable, the rich man and Lazarus in verses 16 Sorry, chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. But for now, let's look at two of Jesus' actual parables in Luke's gospel, chapter 18. The first begins at verse 1 and following. And he, now I want you to notice in this first little bit, um, Jesus is not named specifically. There is a reference to, and the Lord said, that's, that's Jesus, obviously. But Luke is carrying on. My point is, that, that what we're reading here is dependent on what came before. This is a running commentary of something that was going on one event after the other. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Always to pray and not lose heart. Verse 2. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who knew, neither feared God nor respected man. So now he, he, he's telling a parable, so it's, it's a fictional story to make a point. The point concerns persevering faith and hope, uh, as we ju just have noted. Um, so picking apart the details of it is not the point of the parable. But it is noteworthy that this judge is described as one who neither fears God nor respects or cares for man. So this is a, a singular individual, a complete, as we would call it today perhaps, a humanist who is independent of all other people and is his own best judge in his own mind. He could care less that there is a God, he doesn't fear God, and he could care less what man thinks or even if man is taken care of. Verse 3. And there was a widow in that city. What city? We don't know. It's, it's in a certain city. It's in a city of the teller's imagination, of the listener's imagination, but there there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was also in that city a widow who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. We don't know what the issue is. We only know that there is a matter of injustice that needs to be resolved, that needs to be taken care of, that needs to be repaired, and the place to do it is in the court before this judge, and it's his responsibility, but he doesn't want to do it. Who knows why? Maybe it would cause him to, to lose um, favor in the local government. Perhaps it would cause him to be looked down upon by his neighbors or by his colleagues in the judi judiciary. We don't know why he refuses to do it, but we just know that he refused to give her justice, even though justice is what the situation required. Verse 4. For while he refused, for a while rather, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I, never, I neither fear God nor respect man. That's a remarkable statement, right? Uh, now, it's a story. It's a parable. It's fictional, right? 
But who says outwardly, I neither fear God nor respect men? Wow, that's quite... I think they call that narcissistic these days in the manual. Though I never fear, neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, so she's an annoyance. That was pretty funny this morning. If you ask God over and over and over again, what is that? That's annoying. That was great. Well, it's annoying to the judge, too. That's, it's coming straight from the text. <laughs> I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. He's not commending the unrighteous judge. He should have given her justice immediately. She shouldn't have had to come back to him over and over and over again. The point here is not that we go to God in the way that the, the widow went to God because she doesn't, we, we don't have to. We have a good God who responds to us, who is all about justice and restoring justice wherever injustice emerges. Don't miss that. This is not about beating down God's door. Has anybody heard this passage preached that way? I have. Just about every time I've heard this passage preached. It's not the point. And we'll see it at the end. Verse 6, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? His point here when he says who cry to him day and night is that God is not unaware of the plight of his people. God does not need them to cry day and night for a certain period of time before he'll respond. That's not the point that Jesus is making. Jesus is making the point that God is aware. God hears the cries of his people day and night. He hears them. He responds to them. Will he delay long over them? Verse 8. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. See, he's not the unrighteous judge. The unrighteous judge does not represent God in this story. Jesus does. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So firstly, authentic and effective prayer, which is also biblical Christian prayer, will be a believing expression of persevering trust and faith in God, in Christ Jesus. Secondly, our second point for our second parable for the morning is this, authentic and effective prayer, which is also biblical Christian prayer, will be a believing expression of repentant humility and repentant hope in God and Christ Jesus. Authentic and effective prayer, which is also biblical Christian prayer, will be a believing expression of repentant humility and hope, or, or repentant humility and repentant hope in God and Christ Jesus. Or as Dr. Luke put it, Jesus taught this parable from verse 9, for or to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Or I like what the NIV said, or they looked down on others. That's what it means to treat others with contempt. 
And he told this parable presumably to warn them. He was, he, he was telling this parable to them who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. So, so he's telling this parable to those who are in this condition to warn them, but he's also warning us not to follow their example. Now, the most important factor in the effectiveness, purposefulness, hope, and meaning in any and all of our praying is not, not the form or the link, uh, sorry, sorry, or the length or the language or the eloquence of our praying. Now, we might attend to these lesser things, but God does not recognize them. They do not impress him. They do not move him. And here's why. Prayer is not magic. Prayer is not magic, and God is not a genie. You know, the genie waiting for us to say just the right words. For example, speak friend and enter. To unlock or access whatever we're asking him for. If you're wondering, that quote is a reference from the Lord of the Rings. It's not from the Bible. It's helpful, though. It's, it's really appropriate. Prayer is not that. It's not magic. And God is not a genie waiting for us to just say the right words to unlock or access whatever we're asking from him. Biblical Christian prayer is not magic, and God is not a genie, and so without any question, the most decisive factor in the effectiveness, purposefulness, hope, and meaning in any and all of our praying is not our words, but the character, wisdom, power, mercy, goodness, compassion, grace, love, and reality of the God to whom we pray. If we get that wrong, whether we presume to know him and his ways better than we do, or underestimate and undervalue his relationship to his creation and people, or we find ourselves praying to a false god, which is no god at all, then our, our prayers can well end in empty tears. Now, I asked our worship team to lead us in God of Wonders just before we turn to the ministry of God's word. And Shelley added, how great is our God, because I wanted us to, to have some sense of God or the God to whom we pray. He is creator of all that is. This is the God to whom we pray. He is savior and sovereign of the world. This is the God to whom we pray. He is the one true and living God who makes himself known to us in scripture in Jesus Christ, and now in the Holy Spirit. This is the God to whom we pray. Now, some of you may know because I've mentioned it, but I'm, I'm a bit of a wannabe theoretical physicist or cosmologist or astronomer. Any of those would, or astrophysicist. I don't have the mathematical background or ability, aptitude I think is the word they call it, to make any of that happen, so I'm consigned to be forever wanting and forever wishing that I could do math, but I can read, and I can marvel, and I, can, I, I think I can catch a glimpse of perhaps God's glory in creation. And when I do that, I'm also struck 
by awe of the God who created me, who responds to my prayers, if not in the way I always hope, then in a way that is best. So when I came upon an interview in Christianity Today magazine by Daniel Silliman of Reasons to Believe astrophysicist Jeff Zwiernik, entitled, check this out, How Black Holes Radiate God's Glory. I could not get to reading it quickly enough. Isn't that a great title? How Black Holes Radiate God's Glory. I won't read you the whole, you know, interview. But the first question was, what do black holes tell us about God? This is fantastic. Listen to this. It's not like black holes, therefore God, but the theory of the universe that we have, the theory that said black holes should exist before anyone knew even to think about black holes, is predicated on the idea that our universe ought to be understandable. It ought to be coherent. It ought to be the same out in the distant reaches of the universe as it is here. That points to the creator. That tells us something about the creator. When we look at creation, we expect to see an orderly, coherent creation. It is a philosophical idea that ultimately derives from the notion that there is a unified order. And that's what you would expect if there is a God who created it. Now, I'm not going to geek out on you too much, but here's another bit of astrophysics from another question asked by the interviewer. Here's the question. Sometimes when people talk about black holes, there's a kind of reverence. It goes even beyond awe. Why do you think that is? Here's his response. For me personally, it's that black holes are so beyond what I could fathom, so far beyond what I could even comprehend experiencing. We're confronted in a small way with what it would be like to experience something infinitely bigger than us. If Christianity is correct, one of the things that is true is that we as humans are designed to worship. And when you see things like black holes that are so much bigger and so much more powerful than us, it's a very natural response to be moved to worship. Every time we solve one of these big questions and put the answer out there, we run into a whole new set of questions that we didn't know existed. Compare our understanding of the universe now to when Isaac Newton was thinking about his theory of gravity. We know so much more about what's going on than, they, than, they, than we know so much more about what's going on than we did back then, but there are also so many more questions that we don't have answers to. It's almost like the more we learn, the more we realize how much more there is to learn. You can start to see that we will never exhaust this. We are going to be able to study creation forever. There will be, a, be new questions that we haven't even thought to ask. And this, again, points to the creator. This is the astrophysicist. That's where I see a connection to theology. Because that same thing is true about studying, studying God's revelation and scripture and God himself. We've got a lot of the big picture in place, but there are also new questions. And we will never be done. We will never exhaust the subject. That, gives me that moves me personally to awe and to want to worship. Friends, the God to whom we pray is the same creator God who made all that there is, including black holes that literally radiate the glory of God, though light does not escape them. More than that, our sovereign Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us, is this created creator God. How did John put it? In the beginning was the word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. So this is perhaps enough for us to know when we pray, not in a sense of self-righteous entitlement and contempt for those less religious or faithful or sophisticated than we. No, our prayers, if they're to be authentic and effective, if they're to be biblical and Christian, will be believing expressions of repentant humility and hope in God in Christ Jesus because he is truly bigger, better, wiser, more powerful, more loving, more merciful, more everything that is good, right, and true. Indeed, God in Christ Jesus is infinitely all of those things and more. So with that essential background context, let's take just a very brief look, just a couple of minutes at Jesus' second parable, and then we'll be done. Verse 9 of chapter 8 in Luke. He also, Jesus also, told this parable. Why did he tell it, Luke? He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Can you imagine saying that I mean? I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So our second point from our second parable is that our prayers are believing expressions of repentant humility and re repentant hope in God in Christ Jesus. So now, maybe we can begin to see what we'll spend the next three Sundays developing, which is to say biblical Christian prayer is an ongoing, deliberate, and personal expression of trust now and future hope in the one true and living God through a saving, sustaining, and submitted faith in Christ Jesus, our forever Savior and Sovereign. I hope to see you right back here in a week's time. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for your Son, who is the Word, our Sovereign Savior. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done on our behalf in him. In Jesus' name, amen.